Welcome back to another episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. This month's guest is German DJ, producer, and label owner David Koch, also known as DeWalta. Although a classically trained musician and established jazz instrumentalist, David has been involved in electronic music for over a decade. He studied at Hans Eisler Music Conservatory in Berlin, but quickly realized that the best skills and knowledge don't necessarily come from academic training. His contemporary creative output, including not only his DJing and production, but also his live act and his record label Meander, has largely been self-taught. David's music depends on his consistent interest in experiment and discovery, and in this conversation, we discuss his different learning and teaching methods, the books and essays that filter into his creativity, and how having a kid has influenced his critical thinking. after I listened to an interview of yours for MixMag, which was several years ago now. Um, but at the time, you were just getting into modular and learning about Buchla, and you said that it felt like going back to school. So I'm wondering if there's maybe a certain thrill in learning something new for you personally. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the process of making music for me is kind of like a learning process in general. Uh, it feels like, anyways, um, because... I guess boredom is a big thing. Like if you just continue doing the same thing over mm. and over, if you've learned Ableton or Logic or whatever, you're like, hmm, how else can I make music? Mm -hmm. So you're figuring, you're finding tools and machines that you that you don't know how they work, and so you got to learn them and got to learn how they work. And um, it's a, I mean, particularly the modular synthesis world is is pretty steep, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty nerdy, pretty nerdy <laughs> deep. Uh, um, um, area so <clears throat> there's plenty of things to learn and it uh, i bought my first basic system in maybe 2000 it was a dup, dup, just a dupfer system because it's the euro rack format that dupfer uh, invented maybe i think i bought it in 2010 and then it took me at least a year until i at least like got some weird sounds out of it you know mm -hmm. like understanding because if you buy a, a finished synth you just press a button and something comes out you don't know how mm -hmm. what's going on underneath the hood yeah so that learning process is very um is very apparent in in Eurorack or in modular in particular when you're kind of in this position of like you get something and you're like like how do i like for you was it like how do i use this and you just sort of try it out or did you look up like tutorials or did somebody help you or like what was that like for you yeah so it's 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 lots of reading it's lots of material either tutorial i mean now with youtube you 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 can literally from fixing your bike your car mm. to building airplanes i guess you can you can learn anything online but uh yeah there was plenty of reading and plenty of experimenting i did learn a lot from from colleagues as well mm -hmm. In particular, Mike was Mike Shannon, a good colleague of mine, um, had already been working quite a bunch with modular synthesis. So I was, and that time we started working together. So I would go over to his studio and kind of like check out oh, what's controlled voltage. How does that work? Mm. You know, this is all. I think by now, yeah, it's ten years ago. Um, so ten years ago, I didn't know what controlled voltage is. Mm -hmm. Right, like that. There's voltage that doesn't actually make sounds, but 
to control the sounds, like what control the audio. So um, I learned a lot from him and then from other colleagues, from Ricardo, he invited me over to his studio and mm -hmm. I would ask questions. Max Loderbauer was a huge mm -hmm. inspiration, huge inspiration for cool. me. Yeah, it's a mix of tutorials, um, lots of manual reading. Mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of like that guy who reads manuals yeah. <laughs> in bed <laughs> um, or on the sofa. <laughs> yeah. I think it can be difficult for some people to like try a new thing or like learn a new skill, especially when you become an adult and it's kind of not cool to not know things, I guess. And like for me personally, I think that's something that holds me back a lot is that I don't want to be bad at something. So I, I like often find myself having to really convince myself to, to try something. Yeah. Is that how it is for you? Yeah. I mean, what you were saying with it's not cool to, to not know stuff. Um, I agree. There is, however, I think a difference between remembering and knowing. Um, uh, so I still have to look things up. I mean, obviously, not control voltages, but some some like key combinations of it on a nerdy module. I won't remember. Like, was it a double tap or a single tap or something? This I think is not directly linked to to knowledge. It's more remembering. So I guess even in 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 neuroscience, those are two different um, areas of the brain: uh, memory and knowledge or learning. Um, it's interesting. I think just a, uh, learning in, in a general sense became very important for me to keep myself inspired in the studio. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, to, to figure out how does this work? How do I really get to the bottom of this machine or mm -hmm. this, this waveform, this envelope? Um, how does it basically in the end making music is all about waves, about ups and downs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that could be an audio or that could be like actual um, audible waves that are going up and down or envelopes that are controlling the audio. So yeah, um, it's interesting to learn constantly. Mm. And the studio was maybe the most inspiring part or the part that pushed me into learning because my history of education was maybe not so much about that. When you talk about learning an, an something new in the studio, do you think that that's made your... This is pretty obvious. Do you think that that's made your music better like for example if you had just stuck with the way that you were producing you know, 10 <laughs> yeah. years ago what good would your music be like good question i think 10 years ago i guess it, that's a, that's a very good question because um maybe some of the emotion or the um directness may get get lost there is something of um innocence mm. with someone if you give someone a piano and 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 the, the person doesn't know how the piano works but you know, you play beautifully on the piano. There's something quite beautiful about that. I just think that there's no coming back to innocence, <laughs> yeah. uh, if that makes any sense. You know, like if I listen to some of my older stuff, it is quite convincing in, in, the, in the musical part. Like I come from jazz and, and, and classic music background, I guess you could say, more of jazz music background. So a lot of my early stuff was more based on playing or more on based on, on the musician side of things, whereas the, the, the modern or the, the recent stuff is a bit more about the brains, mm -hmm. the, the knowledge. And so what have you added to your studio recently that you've been learning? Uh, my studio has been kind of exploding. It's become my, my passion to, mm -hmm. to invest into little things, particularly the modular has become, I mean, it's, it's known that it can become a little addictive. I guess I'm prone to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, so there's plenty of modules coming and going. I'm selling also a lot of things. I'm trying them out and then realizing, oh, that workflow doesn't work for me. The tactical aspect of these things is very important. If, if, if something feels right, if you actually end up using that one module over and over again, why would you change it for something else? So there's a few staples in the rack mm -hmm. that are just kind of staying there forever. And then there are other things that I'm just curious about. I get them and then I sell them. And the market actually is, if, I, if they don't work, I sell them again. And the market is nice because um, the value actually lets you do that. So mm -hmm. there's plenty of other like people, even just in Berlin, a lot of, there's a community sure. that will swap modules mm -hmm. like, oh, this works for me. It doesn't work for me. Do you want to swap or something like that? But recently I've gotten actually into a Japanese, um, company called Black Corporation. Um, it's around a Russian um, developer. He's he's a bit of a synth developer guru from Russia, from Moscow, and he moved to Tokyo. And he's um, 
brought a few old synths back to life. Mm. One is the uh, Deckard Stream, which is a clone of a Yamaha CS80. It's like the Blade Runner. Cool. Uh, it's a thing. It's not a modular uh, machine, but it's an, um, an eight voice, very beautiful sounding, beautiful machine. And the other one he's he's cloning or actually replicating. He calls it replicas, mm -hmm. not clones. Uh, is the Kijimi, which is a very particular synth from the eighties. I want to say like late eighties. Uh, the Polycobol and only I think sixty units were ever made by a guy in a garage. So this guy is taking taking that technology and building it in modern um, formats. Cool. So it sounds amazing, this stuff. I mean, it must be nice to have this kind of, as you said, community around these pieces of equipment. Like, it, it's almost better than going to a store to buy them because it's like, you yeah. kind of talk to people who are really using them. Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, so I, I, I met him, obviously, right? And, and, and um, the guy who runs the company, it's a two-man company. They hire a few other people to, to help out, but it's, those are very small developers, very small companies, and there's a very personal contact with them. They are very interested in what we have on feedback. A bunch of their products were crowdfunded as well, so they, they you can invest in to get the synth off the ground, to get, get it in production. A lot of them are DIY, so for the real nerds who want to solder, I want to make music with them, but there's a bunch of people who actually assemble them right, right? right so they sit at home and it takes about two three months to build a uh, Deckard stream for example but you could just buy the kit for a third of the price and build it yourself mm -hmm. but then you're busy for three months <laughs> <laughs> and so going back to learning with, the, with these new pieces of equipment um yeah. so what what fears go along with that if any like is there a, a kind of fear that goes along with stepping out of your comfort zone i guess so um I guess learning actually generally probably requires the ability to step out of your comfort zone. I think period. Yeah. Um, if you and it requires the ability to face the facts that you don't know something. If you think that you know everything, then you won't learn anything new. That goes back to a lot of like I think upbringing, parenthood. Uh, these things matter a lot. If someone is actually able or capable of taking in or processing new information, when, you, when we're talking about in a broader sense of learning right if i think i know everything and then the ignorance is bliss and happiness mm -hmm. and you can stay there but you won't probably pick up a lot of new information is there a hesitation that, that goes along with this or there is hesitation it's more based on um i think there's limitation um there's there's limitation more based on well the simple laws of time and space and physics, whatever, like there's, there's, we're all limited in what we can, what we can learn. I'm, I'm reading or like listening to a lot of audiobooks in, on, on flights because I travel a lot on weekends. So I take that time, particularly now away from the family or away from, I, it's kind of like my time for myself. Mm -hmm. So I love reading books during that time, um, when I'm by myself and, and, I can take that time by myself. So I would say it's more about limitation rather than hesitation. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so worried about opening cans of worms. I'm just like, <laughs> once you're in that can, you're like, oh, okay, so this is maybe too complicated for me to accomplish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm not worried to open the can. I'll, I'll be okay with an open can of worms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and what about motivations? I know for me, in terms of trying out a new hobby or learning a new skill, the motivation always changes from like trying something new to perfecting the new thing that I tried. Right. How do your motivations change as you learn? Oh, yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, so perfection. Obviously, if you open a topic, let's say if you want to learn about something and you have the expectation of really getting to the very very bottom of it mm. and if you're if you're a perfectionist 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 then it's probably dangerous to open every can of worms right like things that you that you know you won't get a hundred percent so actually that is something that has shifted probably over time uh, with me I've realized that a perfectionism is amazing but it's also holding you back if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about the learning process for you when it came to picking up modular synth? Like, what was the, what was the most challenging part about the process, or what mistakes did you make? What mistakes did I make? Um, 
well, it's overwhelming, right? It's overwhelming to to be facing a blank modular faceplate synth mm-hmm. and 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 you're like, okay, what do I connect with what? Yeah. So the separation um, was maybe the biggest challenge for me, like realizing, okay, so there's audio that I can actually hear, like something like that that I'll they'll be able to hear. And then there's um, control voltage that I will not be able to hear. I also won't be able to see it if I, if I don't have an oscilloscope. So separating these, and then there's gates, which is also a control voltage is a third. Basically, you can, uh, you can divide it into three different things. And that separation took a good while for me to understand because I had a synth, I think it was a Moog, a little fatty or something it was called. You press a button, something comes out. You know, you plug a cable in, you press that button or the key or whatever, and the sound comes out. So all the functions are happening inside of the machine without you having to patch anything. But in the end, it's all based around the same technology. Basically, the synthesizers were developed in the 50s, 60s, and, and until today, like, they, they work that way. Like, nothing has really changed. Mm-hmm. Like, even, even a, a digital synth is pretty much based around certain voltages that control other voltages that either go up and down. So the challenge is to, to, to like, stay playful with it, right? Like, you just try things out, like, mm-hmm. patch this up, and like, whoa, this sounds crazy. And that's really fun and innocent and awesome. And you do a lot of mistakes, mm-hmm. which is part of the learning process. Yeah. Such a huge part of the learning process. But I liked what you said about sitting in front of the like blank page, so to yeah. speak. Like I that's think a challenge. for me that also yeah. I mean, I obviously yeah. don't know anything about modular synth, but for example, if I'm trying Paper. to learn like Photoshop and I'm like I open it and yeah. I'm like, I have no idea what to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I yeah. think that holds a lot of people back from picking up something that's new because it's just a bit like you don't know where to start, I guess. Yeah, exactly. In an interview from a couple years ago, you said that although you're classically trained as a, as a musician, you also know that academic learning is not the only way to learn. Yes. Um, can you talk a bit about how these different types of learning have informed your worldview or maybe more specifically your musical worldview? Yeah. Uh, well, I came... My, I guess my background is from, a, from an academic angle. I come from a family with uh, six kids. Um, I was the only one who left high school early to move on to music conservatory. So I did not graduate from high school. Um, I don't talk about that much. I think now, 15 years later, 17 years later, I'm, I'm capable of talking about it more openly. Um, but yeah, I didn't drop out, but I, I kind of, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that well actually in high school. I, towards the end of high school, I was just like really either bored or not paying attention. So Me I wasn't too. really successful in <laughs> yeah, academics. Um, yet I think my, my brain was working just fine. Um, but I was kind of thinking that there was, that it may be something wrong with me. Anyways, I had the, 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 the ability to move on to to the conservatory music because I was good at like good at something good at uh, playing jazz saxophone so I did but also there um, the structure and the academic system kind of failed me or I failed the system and I dropped out of not didn't drop but I just didn't do my I didn't do my uh, my my graduation from from that school started the music label um, and decided to go into electronic music. We already had the label going towards the end of my studies. And then I just kind of had a, a kind of like a bit of a weird feeling around academics. And now I can, I can maybe steer my mind back to realizing that, that academics and, and learning is, is, there are two different things, you know, like what I was supposed to be doing in these times in high school or in, in, in the concert, conservatory music is a lot of it, a lot of the time you're remembering, you're supposed to remember things or train certain aspects, but you don't see, the, you're not really learning the larger picture. Like you sign up for one thing and then you're supposed to be remembering it and, and that's it. And I think also the, the times are changing. That's I think one, one thing I, I really realize is that um, Schools 10 years ago or 20 years ago um, is a very different thing than schools now. You know, like I think if I want to look something up, I have it in my phone. The kids nowadays, they grow up literally with the knowledge of the world Mm -hmm. right in their pocket. So why are we teaching them to remember Mm -hmm. the date of Napoleon blah blah, if that makes any Mm -hmm. sense, you know, like 
it it's I think our brains and even like in ev evolution, if you look at it from an evolution standpoint, our brains are going to evolve or they're already evolving because we have these tools now because technology is giving us that ability or however you want to call it for one person it's it's a positive thing for the other it's a negative but it's just simply a fact we don't really need to remember that many things so school should really be what it really should be about is like learning um, critical thinking learning how to learn learning how to make mistakes learning how to see a bigger picture learning how to maybe make this planet survive real world skills real world <laughs> skills rather than remembering um e-functions yeah, memorizing yeah. dates or yeah. e-functions in in mathematics which you will never need later in your life yeah so. and i mean i think even in terms of like for example learning a new language like i learned french in school yeah i feel like the french that i learned in school i use very rarely in my actual life because it's not really the same conjugating verbs in a textbook yeah versus actually speaking french in the real world when you were in music school, yeah. what kind of things were you, did you feel were missing when you eventually became a musician as a career? Well, I guess this particular um, studies, the, the studies that I did also were very um, geared to, it's like I studied jazz and popular music, they call it jazz and popular music. In mm -hmm. the end, it was jazz music, very kind of like if I listen to the stuff we were doing and it's like, it's, it's very difficult to listen to because it's just like, <laughs> uh, it's like conservatory musician band band stuff it's like it's not very there's it's kind of lacking some soul but it's like training it's like going to some aspects of this education was very some aspects were amazing mm -hmm. some of the ear training we had one particular professor he was doing some brain work with us particularly and he had a lot of neural science supporting his strategy was amazing so I'm, I'm also very thankful for some of the stuff that it, that we did there the ear training was crazy like atonal listening right. and singing was out of this world do you think that you could have not gone to school for music at all and still be the musician of course you are today? yeah i could have but i'm also very happy that i did because i mean i am who i am and i have the history mm -hmm. i have and i grew up into this into this life so um i'm not resentful at all but I do have some, for example, for my kid or for looking forward for, for the future, I have some doubts and some, I think there, there needs to be a lot of work done on curriculums in particular for, for musicians. Like there was, the criticism in particular was also there was not, there was no teaching on how to make a living how to put food on a table, how mm -hmm. to become a sustainable, a sustainable not even successful. It's like, yeah. it's so weird that we all, like you either make it and then you have to be super successful or mm -hmm. something, or you don't. So I have a lot of colleagues that are either driving taxis now or working mm -hmm. shops and, 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 and they're amazing musicians. Like I, I know some amazing musicians from that time and they weren't able to whatever make the cut. So I branched out. I, I don't make jazz music anymore. I listen to it a lot at home, but that that was sad, you know. So I chose. I left school, but I'm able to sustain myself with what I do now. It's electronic music. It's not conservative jazz mm -hmm. music, but that's okay with me. You know, mm -hmm. I can live with that. I can I can make a living. And so, in terms of these life skills or real world skills that you eventually learned on your own, how was that learning process for you like? Was there somebody that was, you know, already running a record label that helped you? Oh, yeah, there, there, there were people, obviously, mm -hmm. right? Like, I guess, again, um, thankfully, I guess what I what I did learn from maybe from my family or my parents or something is the ability to pick, pick something up. Again, like critical thinking and learn from other people, like stay open, right? So I met um, Torsten Lutz, for example. He, he runs a fantastic label called Kalk, Karaoke Kalk, and he became... A very important person for me not just as a friend but someone I would look up to and I was like I can learn stuff from him so if I had a question I picked up my phone called him was like hey how do you how do you run your label how do you do that so I didn't go to label school you know I didn't go to electronic music school I didn't go to engineering school I took some classes for engineering for audio engineering mm. in um in the jazz school but that was pretty funny uh uh but yeah basically after leaving the conservatory, I mean, 
conservatories, conservative <laughs> music uh, education, let's say, um, I basically just launched into this giant, I want to learn everything I can to become a self-taught DJ, producer, engineer, and label guy. So I had to stay open. If, if this is my, like, this is part of my job, how I, how I survive, then you have to stay open and, and um, stay a sponge, right? Like, stay spongy. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you're also an avid reader, as you mentioned. I am too, but I've become. I, <laughs> I'm not a, I've not always been. <laughs> well, I also am an avid reader, but for me, reading is way more entertainment value. Yeah. For example. <laughs> I mean, for me, I know that even if I'm reading for entertainment, it still makes me a better writer. But for you, I mean, how does reading or these kind of like outside cultural factors, how do those inspire your music? Like, for example, yeah. your anti-parallel EP yeah. was inspired by this concept from the world of science, which I do not understand at all. But yeah, uh, you know what I mean? So like, how is that kind of uh, in a maybe literal sense brought into music? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I realized that the best music I make, I stay inspired when I, when I, I actually find most inspiration outside of music. It's not that I'm listening to a certain record made by someone and it, and it turns me on to do, well, it, it gets me into the studio or something, but real inspiration for me often comes from, from life stuff. I don't know, from either emotions or, or facts or something new that I learned or a lot of it is space stuff. I love I don't know, I'm like a little boy when it comes to that. You know, I love <laughs> mm -hmm. rockets and science and space. And my dad is, was, a, was a physicist and um, um, he gave me a few hints and here and there. So I've always been kind of drawn to, to sciences, actually. And I was like, hmm, how, does it, how do cells work? Like, how, how, do, how, how does all of this work? Why are we here? How, do, how can we survive on this planet? A lot of big questions for me, give me inspiration to go in the studio and then make something. Um, and also the, the, the aspect of having a bit of a theme, like in particular, when I think of records, for me, it's nice to have a concept. I love conceptual work, period. So if a certain art form or a bunch of pieces of art um, make a bigger picture and a nice project in, in a certain sense of a concept, the expression, the artistic expression becomes stronger. So the anti-parallel EP or also the Lyra IP, all of these songs, they kind of, they can be seen as like little pieces of a larger project. Something that I really liked from the description of that EP was that you said that although it sounds really theoretical, it's not intended to teach math or science. Yeah. It's just that you learned about this concept and it inspired this piece of music. Yeah. When I was talking to Max Cooper also for this series, he has yeah. a lot of kind of science behind his work as well. And I was saying, huh. do you think that you have to understand the science behind it in order to appreciate the music? And he said, no, no. not at all. No. And I like that. But do you think that having this kind of science-y concept is maybe alienating to some people who don't understand it? Well, this particular um, project was also seeing parallels and anti-parallels between the different sciences. So I think in particular, in this case, I was thinking about what's, how does biology look at one thing and how does physics look at the same thing mm -hmm. and how does chemistry look at the same thing So or mathematics. So anti-parallelism basically means different things in different sciences. So the idea was to kind of like paint a fairly broad picture with one with one word if that makes any sense or like compare those um and then maybe write a song about each one you know i'm not, i'm not a mathematician i'm also not a biologist so real science scientists they would probably laugh at me anyways <laughs> you know like but but the the it's nice to draw inspiration from something that's not um particularly my my daily soup, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe branch out and be like, hmm, how can I learn about quantum physics a little bit at least to scratch mm -hmm. the surface and maybe make some music in the process. For you, you know, when you're creating this and you have these inspirations and then like in the end when it comes out, do you feel like people have to or should understand the concept in order to appreciate no, more. No, no, I think it's really just, really just for my process. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is quite beautiful in art, right? Like two friends of mine released a, a record literally called For the Process, and it was about something quite sad. One of the artists passed away. He was going through the process of, of cancer. Um, so obviously everything they did was um, shadowed by that, right? Like we are, as humans, we are kind of... Um, we're, we're slaves of what's going on in our lives, right? And so it, this is really just for, for our artistic process. You can just sit back and listen to the music and either you like it or not, or mm -hmm. it, it does something with you or it doesn't. But the artist has to go through a process in order to create it. So it's for the creative process that we need certain um, inspiration and certain feelers, certain antennas put out there to create something. And that may be very emotional stuff or maybe medical stuff or, or, uh, or science stuff. The consumer and the creator have very different views on, on the same thing, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I was asking, I guess, because I feel like within electronic music, especially for DJs, you know, I think a lot of DJs maybe don't care about the concept behind yeah. something. You know, if a good tune is a good tune, then it's a good tune. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, I guess, everyone's different. Again, like one, for one person, the same track will also be that's very true. different for each and every one. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the beauty, beauty with music. Like, I listen to one album and it will evoke something. It'll remind me to something very particular in my past or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because I listen to, like, that's, imagine how crazy that is. Mm -hmm. Each and every, I don't even know if you listen, if you hear the same thing I do. It's so subjective. It's all such a subjective thing and that's the beauty of music right so even even every listener has their own story as they listen to mm. the product or to 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 the piece of art or music i also want to in my career i want to make music that will last a little bit further than just the next hit you know a hit here and there can't hurt but for me, it's very important to write albums or to tell a story and to see something that maybe other people may experience through sensitivity mm -hmm. and rather than just make the next club banger. Mm -hmm. I think both is important. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt to have hits or whatever. But at the same time, it depends a bit on what kind of artist you are also. Yeah. Right? Or what again, kind of artist you want to be, I guess. You want to be. And again, no judgment. Everyone is mm -hmm. different. So in our emails before this interview, you mentioned that you recently discovered this concept, the big picture, um, yeah. which is used by an author called Hans Rosling. Yeah. Can you talk about this concept of sort of the big picture and how it's informing the way that you look at the world or understand the world? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very, um, it's a, a particular um thing right now that we I, th I think there's a lot of polarization going on we have some some issues in the world and we have some climate issues uh, the world's not doing well the, the, the globe um, and a lot of people are thinking very differently about one uh, so about the same thing right mm -hmm. so a lot of it seems to be open for interpretation so this guy Hans Rosling basically wrote a, a book about it's called factfulness and it's it's very interesting because it's asking humans very simple questions, like it's basically a survey, 12 questions. Mm. And he's asking them to very educated people, highly educated people, CEOs from big companies or professors from all over the world. Simple questions like, did poverty go down in the last 10 years and how much? Or how many girls um, are finishing school compared to boys today in comparison to 10 years ago? Mm. So. Um, those are all, this is all data from the WHO, from the, from the, he's a doctor of world health. And he found out that we have a biased view on our world, that humans are, have a built in mistake. We think we have a negativity bias. Basically, we always think the world is worse than it actually is. So he made the survey and he asked, so how many, you know, how many of you think poverty has gone up or has gone down? Mm -hmm. And he compared the results from humans to literally to going to the zoo and asking the chimpanzees which uh -huh. would either say yes or no 33.3 percent you know like and in the end he found out that there must be something wrong with human nature that we always think so bad about our world everything's turning into shit everything's going going bad mm -hmm. and 
And that's, that's something very interesting because once you realize, oh, we, we're, we have a negativity bias, the world is actually not that bad. Mm -hmm. This is a better um, baseline to start making things better, to improving our world. So it's like kind of like in the end, reading this book is a very positive thing because you realize, hmm, we actually did make a whole bunch of progress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, like poverty has gone down by 50%. Life expectancy, some in some countries, life expectancy has doubled within a lifespan of one human. Gets me really excited. <laughs> you know, like you get born as a little boy in the 70s in somewhere in a, let's say, third world country. And within your lifespan, your life expectancy doubles. So within that time, the progress has made you be, be able to live longer. One of the examples that he gave in the TED Talk that you sent me yeah. was, um, you know, he was asking about the gap between rich people and poor people. Yeah, inequality. Yeah. Inequality, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was asking about that and he was saying, you know, most people have this idea that, you know, the, the gap is yeah, getting bigger. Big and then he was like, but in the yeah. end, most people are in the middle, so that's okay. Yeah, no, actually, the, the, if you look at inequality in particular, it's very, very, very interesting. And in particular, I mean, there's elections coming up. There's always elections. And mm. like, but it's, it's such a political and polarized world. Um, a, lot of, um, a lot of politicians run their campaigns based on inequalities, saying, like, this guy is so rich, that's unfair. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that if you look at progress and everyone's getting richer, um, so basically from, let's say you take a certain time span and within that time span, everyone's gotten way richer. Obviously also the prices have gone up, mm -hmm. but in the end, if you compare that, um, you have the occasional billionaire or whatever, who cares really, right? So running a whole campaign based on, on inequality is actually also not, it's not kind of factual. I don't want to open it two big can of worms here. <laughs> But it's very interesting to get informed uh, about these topics in particular because um, the problem is not that we have too many billionaires or rich people. The problem is that they're not taxed properly. If they pay their tax, then let them be rich, whatever, you know, like it doesn't just because someone has a bunch of money doesn't and, and I'm still doing fine, doesn't, you know, doesn't change the picture. Right. So I think the human progress, again, you have to look at the whole Obviously, these people, the very rich people, should pay their fair share. That's not, I'm not <laughs> suggesting anything different. But if they would pay their fair share, you would have amazing abilities to help the poor, the poor side of the spectrum, right? So inequality um, is a factor. It has to be addressed. But it's also, again, not the main factor um, for, for what's going on in the world, actually. So do you feel like learning about this term or concept uh has like actually made you have a more positive outlook about what's yes going it on. does yes it does for sure because i think um changing something based out of fear and panic is never good um, again he 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 lays it out very beautifully in this book if we act like you see it's actually an animal reaction if we act out of fear a lot of dopamine and a lot of stuff happens in our brain we're like first reaction mm. it's not very rational if we act based out of emergencies, we will not take the right decision, mm. or we tend not to take the right decision. Mm -hmm. It's better to look at the facts with a clear mind, and we have a better clear mind if we're not in panic. And if we're not, like certain things, we're certainly not taking the right decisions on climate change, that mm. is for sure. And it's, it's great that there's activism. It's amazing that there's activism now and Fridays for Future and there's... Um, finally someone the kids interesting the young people are stepping up and saying like yo this is a crisis and they're calling it by the name but again we have to um, we have to like decide with a clear mind and without panic let's say I don't like the word panic and fear generally actually I don't think de taking decisions based on panic and fear is never mm. good and so on a like smaller scale or maybe a more personal scale has this idea of the bigger picture also influenced you in the way you make decisions in your own life yes it, it, it has actually um also in particular i mean becoming a father um has something to do with that like if you have a if you run into a problem um it's better to take a step back for me anyways to then to bang your head against the problem if that makes any sense mm -hmm. um 
finding quick responses and, and impulsive responses has never been an issue for me. <laughs> so I also in a, in a self-learning or in a Zen kind of um, healing process, for me, it's actually been harder to take a step back. And every time it works, I realize, oh, I can probably resolve this better mm. if I take a moment, take a breath and look at this again yeah. with a clear mind rather than, you know, banging my hands <laughs> against the do? problem. Yeah, and for me, that's a really that makes tricky any sense. thing for me. Or just having the kind of patience to not act in this emergency sort yeah. of way that you mentioned. It um, applies to relationships. Um, if you're in a long-term relationship, you need to sometimes let conflicts be for a second and then revisit again with a clear mind, like go outside or whatever. It applies to particularly to pa parenting. Like kids can be so intense on you, you have no idea. Like you need to have, even if you're a patient person, you will definitely lose your mind one, one <laughs> yeah, time. Of course. So this like stepping back and also being able to maybe give that to, to my son or my daughter, um, wh whatever, whoever it may be, is, is I think a big important quality that you, that you, you know, aus der Ruhe kommt die Kraft, out of the, out of the quiet comes the energy. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like and so what about where music is concerned? Do you find yourself needing to take a step back very often? Yes. I mean, in the final, well, th there's different stages, right? Like it, there's the jamming part. You go in and you plug everything in and you whatever, uh, get get crazy in the studio. Let's say, you know, you drink, you drink a beer or a glass of wine or a bottle of wine and, and create a bunch of stuff. Then you definitely get to the point where you need to take a step back and be like, wait a second, is this, is this actually good? Or is it all a bunch of mm. stuff I just need to put away? So the creative, there's different stages in the creative process. You shouldn't, you shouldn't include your mind too much. You should just like let your impulses go, let your body do things in the studio and just have a bunch of fun, maybe with someone else. Then, um, then it's, then you have even more interplay. Right. But, um, you will definitely, before releasing music, the selecting part um, requires a step back. Absolutely, definitely. You need to let some stuff, you know, rest for a little bit. Like, don't touch it for a week. Listen to it the, the next Monday after. Put it away for a couple of weeks and listen to it afterwards. And you're like, whoa, holy moly. We're so biased with, with anything we do. Like, if you write a piece of text or a piece of music, it may look amazing to you in this moment and then you look at it again like just the next morning you're like what the hell was i doing <laughs> or vice versa or vice versa or like what was i doing there in this moment you're like i don't feel right or whatever it's mm -hmm. like we're so we, we're such uh, we're animals we live such so so much in the moment that sometimes we need the larger picture absolutely in order to to put the things in the right um, sections mm -hmm. or whatever. Does collaboration help in that respect? Like I know when you work with Mike Shannon, uh, I, you mentioned in an interview once that both of you kind of contribute different knowledge to finishing uh, yeah. a, a track or a, a live set. Yeah. Well, I I guess for the for the impulsive for the jamming part, it's really fun, right? Like you have someone to you can you can <laughs> have a good time with and enjoy the the jam. But then later also, I mean, even now he sends me stuff. He's like, can you have a listen and get back to me? And within, sometimes within hours, he gives me feedback on something that I was doing. So that's pretty amazing. The community is, is super, super important. I also have Christy in Romania who has a different, Christy Kons, who has a different out, outlook on things. So the community gives you a lot. Without other people, we wouldn't be. We're social beings. We need other people in our creative process and, and in our lives, I think. So going back to, I guess, the kind of bigger topics, in our emails before we sat down today, you said that, especially in times of polarization about politics and environmentalism and religion and music, that seeing the bigger picture is enormously important. Yeah. Uh, why? Why? Well, I think um, if everyone just cares about their own soup and is not able to to see the bigger picture what come up what connects all of this then we won't be able to tackle the problems i mean religion in particular religion is a tough one <laughs> um I, I should probably say straight away that i'm not religious and that i that i have certain problems with the belief that there's one 
one god or whatever, but then, and all the other religions are bad. And pretty much that's the thing with religion, right? Like you can't be, you can't be a Christian without denouncing mm-hmm. all the other religions. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what turns me off of, off of that, you know, like I, I like include inclusiveness and I think it doesn't make sense that there should be one real God and then all the other ones are not real. But, you know, if you believe in something else, you should be able to believe in whatever you want. However, when it comes to science or the world being flat or not, we're not dealing with. And that's just a very interesting thing. I think science is going through a crisis, certainly, because all of a sudden we seem to be opening up the discussion of simple physical laws like is this a table okay mm-hmm. this it's not this is not up for a discussion <laughs> if it is or yeah. if the world is flat or or round and i think that's contributing to to the polarization because mm-hmm. people now think you can literally believe in whatever you want mm-hmm. and yeah that's that's a huge crazy. problem yeah that's crazy <laughs> um in your email to me before we started recording you mentioned that Today's issues are obviously more complicated than in the past, which makes it easy for people to fall for simple answers. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that? Is, that? is this kind of what you meant? Yeah, that's what I mean. I think in particular, I mean, populism is probably right now is on the rise because if something is complicated and you give simple answers, or if, not, not real answers, but simple, and you try to give a simple answer to something that's, that's a little more deep, let's say, or complicated, then someone will say, oh, we just need to do that. Very simple. So slogans like, um, you know, certain populist slogans will probably, or they do work, unfortunately, because A, education is failing the people, I think. Um, One of the reasons is because education is not helping, it's not educating them on what, what is important. You know, they don't understand what carbon footprint means. Populism is working particularly well right now because the the questions are com- more complicated and they sometimes a complicated question needs requires a complicated answer. Um, let, let's say complicated is not the right word. I think um, let's say multifaceted. You know, like we won't save the real big issues with with a simple step. Mm. And uh, unfortunately. Yeah, populism is trying to do that. It's just about power in that regard. Like there, there won't, obviously won't be any change. It'll just be a bunch of people taking power and actually denouncing the actual problem. There's a really interesting quote from Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. Um, I know you've read his a few of yeah. his books as well, where he says that the idea of free information is dangerous because when there's so much information, how do you get people's attention? And then that then becomes kind of an incentive that results in these sensational stories. Yes, exactly. Um, is that what you meant by simple answers? Yeah, exactly. I mean, also, obviously, with everyone having access to all the information all the time, mm-hmm. everyone can kind of like cook their own... Yeah, make their own recipe. <laughs> make their own recipe. <laughs> and in the end, you know, everyone comes up with their own conspiracy theory and simple f- laws of physics that just a generation ago... Like, it's like, it's really not that long ago that we just literally found out all this cool stuff. And in 2020 now, so when, when, did, when did they fly to the moon or when did they find out a bunch of, you know, very, very important scientific uh, facts? They're just simply facts uh, in the 50s or 60s. It's just 50 years ago mm-hmm. that these, and I'm a young, like fairly young, I'm 35 years old. Like I was born mid mid 80s. But... Um, even before I was born, a bunch of this, these, this knowledge that I would call serious knowledge was found out and was implemented in our human behavior. And now we're denouncing it. Now we're taking all that out and making it open for discussion, open for belief. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if I believe in the, if the world is flat or round. That's, that's really, it's really upsetting to me. It's really, like not upsetting, but it's a, I think that's one of the big problems everyone has google in their phone but the knowledge that the phone tells you is now up for discussion mm-hmm. like, like for i guess belief. it's also like what you said about anybody can believe whatever they want but also now anybody can write their beliefs 
as a fact and put it out there in the world for exactly. everyone to read. Exactly, yeah. So then there's the sense of misinformation. And I guess that's what he's getting at also mm-hmm. with, okay, so I can make just make up my own like facts and now it's like a term alternate facts or whatever mm. that when that mm-hmm. came in I don't even want to name the, the guy's name so um, the whole process of um, of research is being disrupted so would you say that critical thinking is more crucial now than ever yes for sure like critical thinking kids need to be able to question not in the sense of question everything like if it's right or wrong but finding out, like stay cu- staying curious, critical thinking, I think, is, is basically staying curious. It's not answering a question, but wondering about the answer of a question. Mm-hmm. I guess in like a, a simple analogy, it would be like, you know, not sharing everything you see on Facebook, exactly. but like researching into it. Exactly. So how are you personally going about expanding your critical thinking? For example, you know, traveling to other countries mm-hmm. to have a gig. Like, is that also expanding your critical thinking? Yeah, so obviously, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming um, maybe more aware of, A, my carbon footprint, whatever, you know, like my, my job is based around going to different places on earth. I've, I travel a lot, a lot in the past six years. I have um, gone to a lot of places, so I'm, I'm like critical of myself, but also traveling obviously gives it the ability to see the world from a few different angles um, and also respect other angles, right? Like other cultures may cook the chicken differently mm-hmm. or may look at this differently. Um, and respecting that is, I think, um, traveling is an immense, you know, immense, I think an immense part of, of learning. <laughs> now the theme of, the, of this conversation <laughs> is learning. Traveling is a huge aspect of it. Like traveling and going, seeing places, talking to people, on the ground in different locations on this planet is learning. It's absolutely learning, for sure. So how does this kind of critical thinking or maybe lack of critical thinking expand to something like music journalism, for example? I was speaking with a friend of mine the other Mm -hmm. day and he said that he's feeling like there's a lack of sensitivity in music journalism, the same as there is in, I guess, regular journalism, like uh, a lot of sort of clickbait articles. (laughs) Um, So what can we do to fight this? Well, um, unfortunately, the again, I guess it's pretty much based around how our brains work. There's there's a whole science of there's not enough positive news. That's one way to to really tackle it. I think we need to also focus more on positive news. And again, unfortunately, our brain works like something is a scandal. Scandalism sells well. It's going to get a lot of clicks, which is comparable to selling a lot of newspapers. Twenty years ago, if you put a headline that's negative headline shark bite whatever is a huge headline so in some countries the news of a shark bite will sell more than if you tell the people that a new water um, system was put in and all of a sudden 50 percent more kids survive because they have clean water right that's not a headline right <laughs> yeah. so i think news in, in, in any kind of journalism sh- could potentially i don't know if that works um maybe be a bit more positive and focus on things that have actually improved rather than another scandal. You mentioned in your emails to me that critical thinking gives you a lot of inspiration and input for writing music. Can you talk about that and maybe give me an example? Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I guess. it's just, it's, I ask because <laughs> I think it, I wouldn't necessarily like pair those two things together. Yeah. Well, I guess what I mean is that, that I'm trying to, to, to build a, a certain environment in, in the studio um, that is critical thinking of, of my own music and what I, what I listen to, what I take in during the day or what I've listened to on the weekend or what other people play and kind of like make a new version out of if that if that makes any sense. So I think it's it's not that it gives me inspiration, but it's it's more like setting the tone and the environment for something to happen. I think that's probably more I should have written that differently <laughs> that sentence. But it's helping uh, with putting things in perspective. It's not just saying like, wow, this is a bomb. Um, again, I guess we were talking about this before. This is amazing, whatever. I need to be I need to think critically about what I'm doing. Let it sit for a while, come back to it, put it in perspective. Yeah, do you feel like that's gotten easier as you've gotten older? Like, 
you're wiser to those sort of things now. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, I mean, that's the beautiful, I guess the beautiful part of aging a little bit. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm 35. Um, I started releasing music, uh, 2008, 2008. So that's like, what is it? 12 years ago. Um, it's not that long ago, but I can already tell that just other different things um, become more important to me. Aging is a nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling hopeful about the future where this kind of learning or this kind of thinking is concerned? Like you recently had a baby. Yeah. Uh, has that feeling of hopefulness been skewed now that you're raising a kid? Yeah. It's definitely become the, the becoming a father and like be, being a, a parent has definitely had a huge impact, and pat- particularly on the, all these topics, critical mm. thinking, the state of the world philanthropy the love of humanity all these things my my wife and i we weren't even sure if we wanted kids and then there was also medical um there were a few medical stones put in our um way of becoming parents so it wasn't even wasn't a clear thing we we also didn't try too hard or whatever it was just it became natural but all of a sudden there was a baby but we were both kind of maybe we are also cool without kids you know like Mm. we don't need you know, the classic, oh, you have to have a baby and then you have your little family, your little house. Like, it, it, it's never been really that much of a priority to me. But now then you do have a baby, you want to do it right. Like, mm-hmm. you want to you wanna give that little tiny uh, human being the best for his future. So you're very, you're, you're thinking twice uh, with all of your action. They, they mimic everything, right? So if I'm being crazy at home, he's probably going to grow up crazy. Intergenerational things are, they're, they're just simple, simple facts. Like um, we all carry in the end also trauma from our generations before us. So becoming a parent um, is, has changed everything. My outlook on, on life and, and the process of making music. You mentioned in our emails that because your kid's future depends on human progress, you're feeling more of a sort of moral obligation to learn more. Yes. Yeah. There's also, I think there is a moral obligation for, for parents. I mean, a lot of the struggle is an everyday struggle, you know, just to get through the day with the, with the kid. But to in the larger picture, there is a bit of a moral obligation for us parents to to open to open up uh, the doors for for the kids to yeah to for and also for us to kind of guide the way to just be there to help them grow up into a life that that has a future you know like in in the in the way the world is going right now i think we should every parent should consider um certain things um, how to preserve life on earth actually so there is a bit of a moral obligation for sure i think and what about in a more maybe literal sense um are you finding that you're learning a lot since becoming a dad yeah um it's the little things you know like about human nature you just learn so much about how we all function right <clears throat> like the first time you're able to put a spoon in your mouth it's the tiny little things it may sound really um really really trivial like we do so many things every every day that that are huge steps to accomplish for a little for a little human being <laughs> or for a little thing so it's become everything is a huge step and it, and there's genetics that drive this like right now my son is pulling up everywhere and he can literally not sit still, even if he would like to. If he, even if he's tired, he needs to constantly practice. Mm-hmm. It's like this drive that's in his cells. Every cell of his body wants to learn how to walk. He's currently working on... And it's so much work for, for these little guys to, um, to figure all that stuff out. So as a parent, you're just there like, wow. You know, like, we did all that. You yeah. did that, I did that. Every human <laughs> being on this planet had this drive of life to become to grow up and it's quite beautiful to to be just to be a witness and also to not interfere like parenting is not an active thing it's just being there and holding making sure the kid doesn't 
fall off of something. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's like it's it's a supportive role. It's not so much so much about morals and all that stuff either. In my opinion, I guess every parent is different, but it's just beautiful to witness it and to be protective and lots of love and lots of patience and time with another human being will make them, I think, good human beings. <laughs> That's, yeah. Would you say it's also inspiring you musically or creatively to be a witness to this? Yes, for sure. I mean, the early times, my son was born a little earlier before schedule, let's say, um, because of a medical thing. And I was doing night shifts. He would be sleeping in his little, um, like, little wagon thing. Um, in front of the studio, I have the studio at home, uh, a separate room in, the, in, in, in our larger flat. So I was making, I was working at night and I was, I think for something like two months, I was up every night. Basically, I was night doing the night shifts because it's shift work in the end, after all. <laughs> so um, he, I would be obviously writing very different music. If I listen to that music now, it has like, it's like putting all these memories in my head instantly, mm-hmm. right? So it does have an impact. Everything in your in your life, in your and especially a big thing like that has a huge impact on your creative process. But also moving to a different city may have. You don't have to have children to to experience That's that. Mm-hmm. Like anything, like learning a new language may have an impact on your creative output or um, a new relationship, um, a new lover. Um, I think everything outside of music will find its way into your music if that makes any sense yeah so what kind of learning do you feel like you have left to do if that makes sense like what are you most looking forward to discovering as you get older (laughs) everything (laughs) (laughs) yeah everything um i would love to go back to school almost like if i don't have to if no one forces me to (laughs) i don't have time right now but oh god what's open uh what's left to do so much i'd love to be involved in finding some solutions to make uh to, to stop uh, climate change and to, to, to be part of that, um, particularly because I'm a frequent traveler and flyer. So I'd love it to be somehow pushing for, for greener energy. Yeah, a lot of it is, I guess, human progress based. It's very difficult to, to pinpoint one thing, but um, I'd like to learn a bit more about psychology, about how the brain works. I think we're in very early stages of understanding how thinking actually works, how all the neurons are working together. Um, I would love to take classes there. And then also recently I've gotten into um, the, there's now a science around, around cause and effect. What is the, the connection between one action and, and the next? That, that kind of stuff interests me a lot. What about musically? Musically? Um, I've recently, um, about a year ago, I, I released my first like ambient record of first, um, let's say non dance floor, dance floor record. It did, it did really well. We started a new series on meander for that. Um, and I'd like to explore more of that. And in the very long scope, I would like to, I would like to get more into scoring, like scoring for pictures or scoring for short films, um, writing music, um, rather than just having, I mean, just, or making music <laughs> for, the, for the dance floor. I think it's very important to, to make people dance and forget their everyday life. But for me, in the, in the creative process, um, it will be very interesting to, to learn more about scoring and composing. Making people feel differently. And the dance floor doesn't. Yeah, guess. exactly. I mean, the dance floor will, will has a, is a huge thing. You know, often like DJs get old and they say like, whatever, it's just dance music. But it's it's a big, it's it's a very effective way of, of moving people. Very effective and amazing. Like you, you DJ, you make music, you, you see down there someone's just <laughs> in their vibe. And it's such a beautiful thing that you're, that you're creating this environment. And it's literally just the environment because without that person you wouldn't be standing up there, mm. right? It's, it's a community thing. And it's so beautiful about the, the dance music culture. But writing music for, for films or for theater or for dance um, has also very beautiful quality, I think. And that's something I would like to explore more.
You've been listening to Dewalta for Air Podcast, episode 28. Join us again on the last Wednesday of the month for another episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.